All right, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read 22 through 28. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. All right, I don't know if that sounds very clear on first reading, but we will make sure that it makes sense. The first thing I want us to see, and we talked about this some last week, but it is that resurrection is coming Verses 22 and 23 say, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Now, if you are able to come to prayer meeting, I would really uh, recommend that you do come to prayer meeting. We are having a good time in there praying for the revival of uh, of West Laurel Baptist Church, praying for revival, praying for renewal, praying for growth, praying for revitalization that will not just stop here, but that will start here and expand outward. So come and join us. But another benefit is that a couple of times a month, uh, Joe and Betty host a small group here and they have been doing a wonderful job looking at what happens after you die. And it's been very informative. Uh, Joe's a pretty smart fellow. I guess y'all know that, huh? <laughs> well, he's been studying and researching and coming with some really good material. And it's been a blessing to me. And it's natural, you know, for us to wonder what happens after death. Uh, we've never done there, done that uh, been there, done that. We haven't. We don't know what happens, right? And a lot of the folks in there are widows, and so we have a very close and vested interest in wondering what it is that happens to us right after death. Humans are a body and soul union. I mean, that is how it is supposed to be. Death is the rending of that union. The Bible says very little that is definitive about what happens between death and the resurrection. That is not so much the focus of Scripture. The focus is talking about the resurrection. The end point that that we do have a good bit of information on is the resurrection. So that time between death and resurrection, well, there's a little less clearly said about that. If you go to a funeral, you'll hear about the dearly departed strolling down the streets of gold, won't you? We hear that all the time. Now, that may be what they have to look forward to, but before the resurrection... They won't have a body to do any strolling in, right? And we don't normally think that way. You may wonder what a disembodied existence will be like. Well, I can't tell you because I don't know either. Uh, But I think we can all sort of imagine it. I mean, we realize that we are (laughs) vitally connected to our body, but we know that we are not just our body. We realize that there is a soul or a spirit there. 
You know, when, uh, when movies try to depict spirits, they look like people that are a little less, uh, you know, less trans- they're transparent people, right? But they're still in bodies because that's kind of how we have to think of ourselves. We're pretty attached to these bodies, you know. Uh, mine is nothing to brag about, but I want to stay in it. Don't, you want to stay in yours, don't you? So what exactly will saints experience between death and resurrection? Well, some passages of Scripture imply an unconscious existence. And let's look at a few of those. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, what is falling asleep? Falling asleep is an unconscious existence, right? Um, Verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Where I grew up at Bellevue, that was the verse of the nursery. It said, We shall not all sleep, but we should all be changed. Right? That's pretty good. <laughs> all right. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. All right, well, that settles it, right? We found three different verses that talk about the time between death and resurrection is sleep, so we can learn that it's an unconscious uh, state. Well, not so fast, because there are other passages to consider. And these other passages aren't contradictory at all. They just add some nuance to our understanding, so we can try to piece together exactly what that is. One of the verses directly follows the one we read a second ago in 1 Thessalonians. If you look in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14, it says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will, check this out, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now that seems like the body is doing the sleeping, but not the soul, because somehow or another, Jesus is going to bring those who are asleep with him when he comes back. Now, I suppose he could bring sleeping souls with him, right? So let's continue to investigate. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says this. Now, Paul knows that he is uh, likely to die soon, and he says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now Paul could have said that he would rather be away from the body and peacefully asleep until the Lord returns, if that's what he wanted to communicate, but that's, that's not what he says here. And he reiterates this in Philippians 1, verses 21 through 23. He says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For I am to live, if I am to live in the flesh... That means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Jesus told the penitent thief in Luke twenty-three forty-three, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So considering all of these things together, it seems that there are... St- there are three states that are available to the saint. The first one is good, and that is that we are in the body. You see here, Paul says, 
if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And that is a good state to be in when we can work for our Lord. Here and now we live as forgiven and loved and adopted children of the King. And that is good. We get to work for the Lord in reconciling people to Him. Now, I visit our saints in the nursing home, and I know that some of those folks are happy and content and just having a good time, and some of those folks are really, really, really not. And I know that for some people, life is no longer good. But for those of us who are still able to actively serve the Lord, our lives can be good and productive. You know, we read... um, a few weeks ago when we were talking about the way that the martyrs, uh, the apostles died, most of them were martyred. And we read an account of John that said when John was old and couldn't walk anymore, people would carry him into the church. (laughs) And I told you, Lord willing, I want somebody to carry me into the church if I get to where I can't be here on my own. So there's no state at which I would say, hey, it's, you know, we need to get rid of these folks. And the reason I bring that up is, our, our country is, is moving that way. Uh, a lot of Europe has gone that way. Canada has gone that way. You see, it is easier and less expensive to take people who are no longer in good health, and you can spend a ton of money giving them medicine and care, or you can spend a little bit of money killing them with drugs. And that's the way our society is headed. When we lost our value for early life, When we decided it was okay to kill the unborn, it just logically follows that we would decide it's okay to kill the elderly and inconvenient. The intermediate state between death and the resurrection, now I told you life is good, life is good. That intermediate state we see from Paul is better. We know this because Paul told us that it is. How is it better? Well, there's no pain There's no sorrow and there's no sin. Can you imagine living without the burden of sin, without having any guilt, without having any interruption to your fellowship with God? Apparently we will have a blessed and joyful conscious existence, but it's hard to conceive of exactly what that will be like without having a body. So I can't, I can't tell you, I'm no expert there, but apparently it's going to be good, and it's, it's not only going to be good, it's going to be better than what we experience now, even with our fellowship with the saints, even with our ability to work for the Lord, even with the indwelling Holy Spirit, the next stage between death and resurrection is even better than that. Now the final state is the best one. That is why Christians so look forward to the resurrection of the body. Body and soul together is the natural state of humanity. And the restoration of that state is what will happen at Christ's coming. Now let me take a second to answer a question that some of you probably have. Let me warn you though that I am answering based on my understanding of scripture and whatever measure of wisdom the Lord has given me but not directly from Scripture on this point. And that question is, is it okay for a Christian to choose cremation? I believe that burial has been favored for Christians principally because it testifies of our faith in the resurrection of the body. So historically, Christians have preferred burial out of respect for the body in anticipation of the resurrection. 
Having said that, I know that cremation is more affordable and that God is entirely capable of resurrecting the body regardless of its location, regardless of its condition. There are people who die and are buried at sea. Um, I wouldn't imagine there's any trace of those bodies that anybody could find except God, but God can indeed. Uh, You know, we have... Well, let me finish with that cremation thought. My opinion is that if it does not offend your conscience, then choosing cremation is not a sin for you. Uh, Now, I I don't mean to imply that it should offend your conscience. I simply mean that no time should we ever do something that does go against our conscience. So, again, that's my opinion. But my opinion is that if you choose cremation or if any Christian chooses cremation, it is not a sin as long as it doesn't go against their conscience. You know, we until recently throughout human history, didn't know how the information was embedded in us to grow us into who we are. Very recently in, you know, in human history, we have discovered what DNA is. We've been able to sequence DNA. And now we know that there is a blueprint for exactly who you are. Your physical makeup, your intellect, what uh, diseases you may be prone to or, uh, or prone to uh, rebuff. There's so much information in your DNA and we're starting to understand that. You know, um, there's still only a tiny percent. Uh, I read about this and my, my mind is not uh, as quick to recall as I wish it were. I can't believe it, it, it was either between 2% or 5% of our DNA that actually encodes for proteins, that actually does something that people can go, oh, I know what this does. And so there's a lot of information there that doesn't do anything that we're aware of yet. Uh, I kind of theorize that once the fall happened, God turned off a lot of stuff that if it still worked, we wouldn't get old. <laughs> We wouldn't get forgetful. Our bodies wouldn't deteriorate in the way that we do with age. So in the resurrection, God is going to build you back, but he's going to build you back with everything totally working right, and we're going to have a wonderful and blessed existence. All right, enough, uh, enough of my speculation. Let's talk about what Paul tells us. The second thing that I want us to see is so important, and I think it's not something that everybody understands. So let's stick with me here. The gospel is and always has been principally about God's glory. Let's read verses 24 through 28. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, and he's quoting a psalm here, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. All right, that's weird, and you're like, what? (laughs) But all he's saying there is, when God says, I'm going to put everything in subjection to Christ, he doesn't mean that God the Father is going to be put in subjection to and so Paul is just saying, okay, I said everything, but obviously I don't mean God the Father. That's all that verse is saying. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, meaning the Father, that God may be all in all. Now, I don't want to minimize for one second God's love for you, 
that was so clearly and undeniably expressed in his sending his son to die for you. Uh, that is absolutely mind-blowing. If we look in Romans 5, 7, and 8, we see this amazing passage. It says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were in the middle of our full-blown rebellion, even then, Christ died for us. That's absolutely amazing, isn't it? We sang amazing grace. Guys, I hope you're amazed by grace. (laughs) Having said that and looked at it and hopefully marveled over it, let me say again, though, that the gospel is and always has been principally about God's glory. We are not the center of God's universe. Um, He is. And that is, of course, how it should be. You know, uh, I I don't think a lot of Christians understand this, so stick with me here. God is the only one who is deserving of worship. Can we all agree that He is the one that is deserving of praise? And so it is good and right for us to praise God. It is also good and right for God to seek His own glory. Now, that's kind of weird to us because it's not okay for me to seek my own glory because I don't deserve any glory. But God, on the other hand, deserves all glory. So it's not only natural, it's it's virtuous for God to seek to glorify himself. And he does that through the gospel. That is one of the reasons that I hate the portrayal of Jesus as a kind of needy and pitiful guy that longs for a little bit of your attention. Now, that kind of portrayal of Jesus is actually blasphemous. Now, if you're thinking, I don't know anybody that says that about Jesus, I think everyone who replaces the gospel with easy believism says that about Jesus. It is everyone who says that you can come to Jesus any way that you want to. It's the gospel without repentance and the lordship of Jesus over every aspect of the life of the believer. You know, a lot of churchgoers want Jesus to save them from hell, but they don't want him to have any authority in their finances or in their bedrooms. We know a lot of folks like that. If Jesus is not your Lord, then he's not your Savior. Now, if, if that stings a little bit because you fail often, know that it certainly shames me. I am not anywhere even close to as obedient to my Savior as he deserves for me to be. No Christian is, but we want to be. So here's, how, here's the difference between a pretend believer and a real believer. A pretend believer wants to do the minimum that they can possibly get away with. And a real believer strives for total obedience and submission, fails, and then strives for it again. So if you're not nearly as obedient to the Lord as you would like to be, take heart and struggle with the rest of us. But if you wonder why I'm even worried about that, because after all, I have the fire insurance plan from Jesus, then I recommend you do be concerned about your salvation. So let's get back to this business of God glorifying himself. These six verses incredibly succinctly trace paradise lost and paradise regained. God glorifies himself through his son. Jesus will reign until he has put all all enemies under his feet, 
even the enemy of death will finally fully be defeated. Jesus is the ultimate conquering king. He is the victorious warrior. He is the savior of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Hallelujah, what a savior. And God glorifies himself through the conquest of his son. Uh, You know, I need encouragement like everybody else does. And y'all are so kind. Sometimes I'll be standing over there shaking hands and somebody will say, hey, it was a great service. Or, hey, I appreciate the sermon. And I appreciate those things. The, The best compliment I ever received, though, I received last week. Because as Miss Carolyn was walking out, she said, all I can say is, what a glorious Savior. <laughs> Guys, that's, that's why I preach. I preach so that you will see the glory of our Savior. So the Son gives glory to the Father. When His victory has been fully realized, Jesus, in verse 24, and I'll start quoting verse 24, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Then in verse 28 we see, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. I really want us to see that God's glory is ultimately the point. And you may say, the point of what? The point of everything is God's glory. I hear things like, If you were the only person who ever lived, Jesus would have still died for you. Have you ever heard that? I keep waiting on some chapter and verse to back that up. Um, I think I'm going to be waiting a long time, though, because I've never read anything remotely like that in Scripture. Now, God does love you, and that should be a tremendous source of joy for you and praise to God from you. You are not, though, the center of the universe. God is. We need to keep that in perspective. If we do, then we'll not fall into the trap of thinking that God is here to serve us. Guys, I constantly see people on Facebook who are appealing to God for uh, financial help or for healing or or various things. And they won't even submit to God enough to place themselves under the authority of a church. They're not in a church God tells them to be in a church, tells every believer to be part of a New Testament church, and yet they won't submit to him, but they expect God to bless them. I have to conclude that they think he is the servant and they are the master, don't you? People will tell you that they're saved, but they don't have any accountability at all to a church. They don't even attend a church. They're living in clear and continual rebellion to God, yet they think that they're saved. I tell you, they don't understand who is the master and who is the servant in this relationship. But their lack of clarity doesn't influence God's opinion on the matter, okay? It is theoretically possible that someone outside the church is a believer because either they've been really hurt by the church and they've fallen into this sin uh, of rebellion against the church, or it could be that they're ignorant, and I I don't mean dumb, I just mean they don't know, that God does require every believer to be involved in a church. So it's theoretically possible that someone outside the church is a believer, but for their sake, you should assume that they're not and get the gospel to them if you care about them. Now, there's a person on our role that I had a chance to talk to in the hospital. This has been a while, 
but I, I never met him here because in the past four years he hasn't, he hasn't been in here. But I did meet him in the hospital. <coughs> I asked him about his salvation and he became visibly upset. By the way, the first thing that he said when I asked him where he would go if he were to die, I said, where would you go if you were to die today? And he said, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. <laughs> now, that's not remotely what I asked him, right? But that was a very sensitive spot for him because he did know better. He did know that he was living in rebellion. And then after that, he gave me a clear works answer. I've tried to be good. The root of this wrong understanding of salvation is a wrong understanding of who God is and who we are. The gospel is primarily about God's glory Although it has glorious implications for us, we are saved by placing our faith in Christ and His work on our behalf, repenting of our sins, and submitting to the Lordship of Jesus. If you think you can come to Jesus on some other terms, we can look and see at the rich young ruler and see how that works out. Now, in case you're not familiar with that story, it's found, one of the accounts of it is Mark 10, 17 through 22. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So there Jesus is checking out this guy's understanding of who he is. He came to Jesus and called him good. So Jesus is going to explore what he actually knows about the guy. Well, apparently there was an awkward silence. (laughs) And then... Jesus says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. All right, if he did, then he and Jesus are the only two people on the planet that ever did, right? Um, I bet if that guy's mom and dad were standing there when he said, I have honored my mother and father perfectly, Every single day and every single instance from my youth. I'm betting mom and dad would have said, uh-uh, hold on, son. I don't think you recall correctly. Or if he had known that Jesus had raised the bar. Jesus had said, if you have hate in your heart for your brother, then you've committed murder in your heart. I bet if he had known that Jesus said, if you have ever looked on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart then I think he wouldn't have been quite so confident in his keeping of the law. Verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. So guys, it's not about whether God loves you or not. Jesus looked on this guy and loved him and said, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now Jesus could have rebuked this guy directly and firmly but he was very gentle with him and he went to the very first commandment the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me and he said let's see if this guy can keep this one go sell your stuff and come follow me verse 22 disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions so jesus went back to commandment number one and this guy couldn't even keep that okay This is what happens when we try to come to Jesus on our terms rather than His terms. It cannot be done. 
The guy may have called Jesus teacher, but he did not submit to his teaching. Let's not be like that. Acknowledge Jesus as your master and then obey him like he actually is your master. Steve and everybody else. Now, I don't normally address myself in the third person, but I want you to understand that I am preaching to me and I am preaching to you. Let's summarize what we've talked about so far. We exist to give God glory. So let's do what we were made for. God is deserving of our praise and obedience. So let's give it to him. Now, I need you to help me with that. And you need me to help you with that. And we need each other to help each other with that, which is one of the reasons that I come to church. The first reason would be that the Bible tells me to, right? And so I don't really need a second reason, but I do have other reasons, and that would be one of those. Now let me take a second to encourage you, and somebody's going to get mad at me now, so just prepare yourselves. Let me take a second to encourage you to talk to your friends about coming to Sunday school and then skipping out for the service. I understand there may be a loved one that needs some attention. I understand there are, there are temporary week-to-week things that could cause you to have to go. I get that, okay? But folks, we have people that regularly come for Sunday school and then leave before our worship service. Sunday school can be great, but it is a human invention, Corporate worship, where we all worship together, pray together, and study the Word together, is God's idea. Therefore, if one of these gets precedence, it should be the worship service. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, right? (laughs) But let's try to get that message across to our fellow Sunday school attenders. I can absolutely promise you that I would have said the same thing a year ago when I was not preaching. So this is not about me. This is about God expects us to gather together corporately for prayer, for worship, and for the reading of the Word and studying of the Word. So let's make sure that we don't come to Sunday school, feel like we've done this Herculean awesome thing for God, and then skip out on what He actually tells us to do. That's, that's kind of messed up, guys. And we need to see if we can help our brothers and sisters not to do that. Um, That just goes along with making the main thing the main thing. You know, around here, we are really trying, really putting a concerted effort into getting back to making the most important thing the thing we focus on. So if you guys would help me with that. Speaking of the main thing, let me tell you what the gospel is. The gospel that we're going to be sharing with people throughout the week, that we're going to be sharing with people all together on November, in the middle of November, when we gather for that training The gospel is this. As we have offended God, we have rebelled against God. I mean, he created us out of some dust. We didn't have any any rights. We didn't have any innate rights. We were the product of God. God made us, owned us, could tell us anything he wanted to tell us. So he gives us some commands and he says, do these things, don't do these things. And what do we do? We shake our little puny fists at him and say, no, we're going to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, with whom we want to do it. And so we have caused a problem between us and God. We were incapable of fixing that problem, so God fixed it for us by sending his son to live a perfect life that we couldn't manage, to fulfill all righteousness. And then, by faith, 
we can exchange our sin and our rebellion and our failure, we can exchange that and give that to Christ who paid for that on the cross. And in return, he will give us his righteousness and perfect obedience. And so guys, we go from being an enemy of God to not only being forgiven, but being adopted into the family of God, loved and treasured. That's the gospel. It sounds almost too good to be true, but praise God it is true. And we need to take that message outside of here to the folks that need to hear it. Amen.